All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Well, when we were kids, uh, you know, we prayed at every meal, and then before bed, David would pray with mom and dad when we told them good night. And just kind of like as we are humans, we make habits. It tends to be the same prayer every night. So one night he went to tell dad good night and to pray with him, and he came at him with open arms and eyes closed, and he said, "Dear Lord, thank you for this food." <laughs> so dad looked up to the heavens and cried out, "Dear God, please don't let him eat me." <laughs> David, poor David was just tired, you know, he was a kid, it passed his bedtime, but, you know, we can make a habit out of things, and they become kind of tradition, and just a habit, and we don't really put much thought into it, and sometimes our walk with the Lord is like that, you know, we might, we might pray and read our Bible every day, but it just kind of, it might end up being the same prayer, it might end up being words on the page, and not really realizing that this is God's living word, and it's his message to us that day. And that's something I want to encourage you with this morning as we're reading in Luke chapter 7 and 8. I want you to pay attention and say, you know, what is God telling me in these passages? Especially the words of Christ. And I want you to ask yourself, are these words that Jesus wants to tell me today? Uh, when Dad asked me to teach, he said I could pick a book to go through. And I picked Luke, and I, you know, I love the book of Luke, but it's a really easy book to teach out of because you really don't even need to teach it. You could just read it because it's that good. You know? There's not a lot of, it's not really that confusing to anybody. You can read it in just an amazing book. So uh, even as we read today, regardless of anything I have to say, I'm hoping that just the words of Christ in today's lesson, the Lord will just use it to bless your life. Let's pray before we get into the word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us and care for us so much that you've given us your word, that not just to know about salvation, that we may have eternity with you, but that we may walk with you daily, Lord, because you want an influence on in our daily life and on our thoughts and in our conversations and in our every decision. I just pray that you will make your word clear to us this morning, that you will uh, give us insight into your word, Lord, and help us to apply it to our lives, that we may uh, just be a blessing to you in our life. In your name I pray, amen. So we're in Luke chapter 7. We left off in verse 11 last time, so we're going to pick it up there. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he had came, came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So this is a particularly difficult thing for this woman. She is a widow, and her only son has died. Now, in this time period, in this culture, there were no equal opportunity employers. Um, if a woman had no husband and no son, she was most likely going to be a beggar the rest of her life. She was going to be living in poverty. She had no one to protect her, no one to care for her. Um, a very difficult time for her. And even apart from that, we know that losing somebody we love is always going to be a very difficult, horrible time. Uh, the Bible talks about death as an enemy, and the Bible even says that the Lord doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, and that's the picture God has on death. 
Now, secular reasoning and kind of secular counsel will tell you that death is just a part of life, and that's absolutely not true. That's the farthest thing from the truth. It's not a part of life. It's the opposite. Just like darkness is the absence of life, or sorry, darkness is the absence of light, so is death the absence of life. Um, Death was introduced after creation started. God had not created us with the intentions of us living a short life and dying. He created us for immortality. He wanted us to spend eternity with us. But it's because of man's sin that that was all ruined in the Garden of Eden. And then, of course, we all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. But there's something inside of us that yearns for immortality. That's the way God created us. We want to live forever. We, want to, we don't want to face death, and especially when it comes to our loved ones. And passages like this can bring up some pretty interesting questions, you know. If Jesus is able to raise anybody from the dead, why doesn't he do it more often? Now, sure, the Bible talks, there are verses that say that, you know, Jesus did a lot more miracles than what were recorded. So we don't know exactly how many people he raised from the dead. But I can almost guarantee you more people died that weren't raised during his life, during his ministry, than the people he did raise. So we think, you know, why would God do that? And if you talk to atheists, one of their big reasoning for not believing in God is saying, if there was a God, then, and they would put on something about disease or wars or fighting or death and all these things. And the thing is, they've got a seed of truth in what they're saying. That's true, you know, but that's your want what's going to happen in eternity for those that trust in Christ. God has promised there's going to be an end to death. There's going to be an end to war. There's going to be an end to evil. But that's for those who believe in Christ after they go to heaven. Um, so why doesn't God raise more people from the dead? Well, to raise this man from the dead is kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a water main break. You know, it's just a temporary fix, and it's not going to last for long. This man that he's raised from the dead is dead again, isn't he? He's been dead for a very long time. But Jesus has done something far better than that. Uh, when he died on the cross, rose from the dead, he defeated death. We've we'll got a couple verses here. I think everybody knows my favorite passage, 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 26, it says, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And then down to verse 50. It says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation 21, another one of my favorite passages. Revelation 21, 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And I know this is a very familiar verse to us, but just like I said, I don't want us to become kind of tradition where we just hear the same thing and it has no meaning to us. Do we realize how fantastically wonderful this verse is? Can you imagine a life with no more death? You know, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to be concerned about that. And, you know, and honestly, I don't think I'm afraid of death. I, I, don't, I don't, you know, some of those things. I'm going to be 
uh, absent from the bodies to be present with Christ, you know, I'm ready for a life where there's no more pain or sickness or death, that I'm certainly terrified of death for loved ones. You know, that's just like the worst thing I can imagine. And I've known so many people that have gone through such horrible times like that and just so much pain there. But to just think that there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain. That is just a wonderful promise we have from the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, considering those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord in the air. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we see God has done something far more than just raising up people when they die for a short period of time. He's done something, instead of bringing these physical bodies that are terminal, he's giving us spiritual life that lasts forever. And it's a wonderful thing. So then, in verse 13, he tells her, do not weep. And do you realize, this is kind of be a cruel thing to say to a widow who lost her only son, to just tell her, do not weep. You know, this is a very sad time in our life. We're told to mourn with those who mourn. And it would be a cruel thing to say unless Jesus had a solution for her problems. And he certainly does, doesn't he? And this is the first thing we have to ask ourselves. Is this something that Jesus is telling us today, is to weep not? Um, what, are, what are we distraught about today? What, are, what is breaking our heart right now? Does Jesus have a solution for that? Is there an end in sight? You know, sometimes we don't get answers to our questions in this life. Sometimes we might deal with pain every day, you know. But there is a time where the Lord's going to take care of all that, you know. Whether it's God's going to solve our problems and tomorrow will be a better day, or, you know, we live another 50 years and then we get to spend eternity with Him and our problems don't exist anymore. Uh, Hosea 13:14. turn there. It says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. And Isaiah 57, 1 says, The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. And that verse has been kind of an encouragement to me, too. Sometimes you wonder, kind of like, why the good die young, you know? And why some people are taken away. But there is certainly true that sometimes the Lord just takes someone home because he loves them and it's time for them to go and they're much happier with the Lord than they are in whatever pain they're dealing with in this world. And then Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a really important thing for us to remember, that we're just pilgrims here. You know, we're just passing by, whether it's 20 years or 100 years. This is not our home. And sometimes we get really stuck in that mindset that we really try to make ourselves at home here. We want to make ourselves as happy as we can. We want the easiest life possible. But that's not really what God's promised us. He's told us we're going to go through trials and persecutions. And that in this world, you know, people are going to hate you because they hated Jesus. That we're going to have death. This is stuff to expect. But when we remember that our citizenship is in heaven, that's really our home. That's really where we're headed. That's really, you know, the big reward at the end of the day that we have to look forward to. Um, 
And when we have that mindset, everything else in life really becomes easier. You know, when you be, get sick, when your basement floods, when whatever else is happening, you remember, this isn't home. You know, I'm not home yet. And I remember, you know, just when I go to work, I'm at work for 48 hours. And that can be a long time. So, and I just can't wait to get home. You know, oh, I'm not, you know, I can't wait to get home. And maybe I'll have a bad day at work or whatever happens at work. I'm, but I'm not home yet, you know. I just, I just got to get home. And, of course, waiting to get home is still kind of, you don't really know that you're going to have a great time at home. You might be sick. You might have something happen where, you know, you're working on your car your whole time off or something like that. But when we have our heavenly home to look forward to, we can rejoice in that, even in the midst of uh, difficult times. So he tells her to weep not, and then he goes, and he goes to this open casket, and he touches this guy, and everybody stood still. Now, um, this is kind of a big deal. You're not supposed to touch dead bodies. You become unclean after that. And when Jesus does this, they know he's supposed to be this teacher and maybe a prophet, and you know, they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. But he goes up and he touches a dead body, and they're like, he should know not to do this, right? Like, that's kind of like a taboo thing to do in our culture. But he tells them, young man, I say to you, arise. And what happened? Of course, the man came to life. Now, you can't, you know, a dead body can't hear you. You can't just convince someone to come back to life. You know, physically, that's impossible. It doesn't work like that. But the words of Christ are very powerful, aren't they? They're not just sounds produced by wind passing through the vocal cords. And the words of Christ in the Bible are not just letters on a page from, you know, the ink that was put there by the printer. The words of Christ are extremely powerful. And sometimes we can forget that too, and that's something we have to remember. Do we know the words of Christ? Is that a priority in our life, to memorize Scripture, to read Scripture, to know what God has to say to us that day? Do we believe the words of Christ? You know, if they're that powerful, do we believe that they're true? Because if we believe what the Bible says is true, we should be living pretty extreme lifestyles of living for the Lord and sharing his gospel and loving him so much. Do we believe they're true? And then lastly, if the words of Christ are so powerful, are we applying them to our lives? Are we living out what he tells us the way we should live? Or do we disregard him saying, you know, I think I might know more than God on this, which is a foolish thing to do. So he said to this man, arise. And this is the next thing I want you to ask yourself. Is God telling you to arise today? Well, what, what would he be telling us to arise from? To the lost, he's telling them to arise into salvation. But to the believer, he's telling us to arise out of the old man lifestyle. You know, we can get saved. He gives us his spirit and his word. But sometimes we revert back to living like we're in the flesh, don't we? It's easy to go back into the world sometimes and say, you know, this life is it's easier to do just whatever I want to do. Let's look at Romans 6, verses 5 and 6. says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Colossians 3, 1-3, says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then we'll turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, do not love the world 
are the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So these passages remind us that we have been crucified with Christ. Our old man should be considered dead to sin. That now we are raised up in new life of Christ. We are supposed to be a new creation. And of course, this isn't something that we can do in our own power. We can't just decide, today I'm going to be a better person than I was yesterday. You know, because that's relying on our own self, our own goodness. And we know that our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags, right? To be this new man, we have to remind ourselves what the Bible says and pray and tell God, hey, I know I'm supposed to be a new creation in you. I know I'm a new man in the Lord. I know that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I need your help to help me this day and submit yourself to God. Say, Lord, I am your child and today I want to obey you. Help me, uh, lead me not into temptation. Give me the strength to overcome whatever uh, temptations come today and use me for your glory. So the question I want you to ask yourself is, do these verses that we read, do they describe you? Would you look at this verse and say, yeah, I think that's how I'm living my life. Or do these verses, you read them and you say, hey, that's kind of convicting. You know, I might need to work on that. So here's what Jesus says to us. He tells us to arise, that we are supposed to be living in this newness of life. So then it says, fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Some interesting things here in the passage, the word, or the town, or the city, I'm sorry, called Nain. Nain means beauty. And to me, this is a beautiful picture of what Christ has come to do. He came to seek and save that which is lost. And he raised this boy from the dead, but this is a picture of what he's going to do to all of us, what he has done for us spiritually, raising us from the dead. And then when it says that reports went out through all Judea, uh, from where he was going to Judea was about 60 or 70 miles. That's a long distance for word-of-mouth things to go, you know? So the Lord's really spreading the gospel here. People are really hearing about Jesus. It's kind of going like wildfire at this point. So then we go on to verse, or chapter, I'm sorry, verse 18. It says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? In that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, you might ask a couple questions. First of all, why is John asking this? And why is John sending messengers instead of going himself? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, we hear that John is in prison when he asks this question. 
So here's John, and he is possibly, I would say, you know, the most sold out for Jesus person in the Bible. You know, he was the guy, even before he was born, he was leaping in his mother's womb when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and came. You know, John has lived his entire life really dedicating to preparing the way for the Messiah. He lived a pretty extreme lifestyle. He lived out in the wilderness preaching repentance, which, by the way, is probably the least popular preaching you can do. <laughs> you know, you will not get more people hating you, which was obvious that we see in John's life, than when you preach repentance. So he's possibly the most on-fire person in the Bible, excited about the Messiah. And here he is asking, are you really the Messiah, or do we look for another one? That's a really sad point in John's life, isn't it? And, you know, John probably had the mindset of everybody else at that time period that the Messiah was going to overthrow the Roman government and set up his kingdom right then and there. And here John is in prison, probably knowing he's about to be executed and thinking, is the Messiah going to rescue me or what? What's going on? So this is a really low point in John's life. And there's a couple of things we can learn from this. Number one, even those with a close walk with the Lord who clearly love and obey him will have trials and persecutions. You know, and that's something I mentioned earlier, that Jesus promised us trials in this life. He promised us that people are going to hate us. Even if you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do, you will still have hard times and bad days, right? There might be people that will, there are some teachings out there that basically say if you're sick, that you don't have enough faith. If something bad happened to you, God is punishing you. And certainly God disciplines his children, but we can be sure that in this life you will have illnesses and traumatic events and death and we will have hard times. So even John, who was certainly loved by the Lord, and in verse 28, you know, Jesus said, among those born of women there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's quite the compliment, isn't it? Even that guy can have these bad days. So if you find yourself having a hard time in life, don't think that God's forgotten you or that uh, you know, he doesn't love you. That's not true. It's just something that we face in this life. The second thing we can learn from this is even when you're in the center of God's will, his plan may not make sense to you. And you could even come to the place of asking questions that you always thought were foolish questions, you know? Do you think if you told John a year before this that you're going to be asking Jesus, are you the one, that he would believe you? Here's the guy that when, as soon as he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that with confidence you know John knows who Jesus is you know he shouldn't have these kind of questions in his life he knows but you know was John doing anything wrong was he living in sin that this came about no he's doing exactly what he was supposed to do but uh, he told somebody in power that they were sinning and someone with the power to imprison him imprisoned him so even when you're in the center of God's will there might be things that God's doing in your life that don't make sense to you they seem illogical they seem like, I thought, you know, I was doing a good thing here, but it seems like, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Sometimes you might have those thoughts. But the truth is, God has a plan. He's doing things in your life. They just, at the moment, they might be very bad things going on in your life, but he loves you and he cares for you even, even in those times. So at this point, these guys ask John, or Jesus, and it appears that he's, you know, in a crowd of people at this time. So it's kind of, from what I gather from the text, it's kind of a public question that's being asked by John. This could be, if you think about it, this could be kind of embarrassing for Jesus. His number one guy is asking, are you really the Messiah? That's kind of an embarrassing thing, isn't it? It's kind of like, hey, you know, you're, <laughs> that's not really what I'm trying to do here. I want people to know who I am. 
Jesus could have rebuked him, couldn't he? He would have been in the right to rebuke him. Jesus could have called him a hypocrite. That was pretty hypocritical of John, wasn't it? But what did Jesus do? He didn't do those things. Jesus builds up the brokenhearted. That's kind of a ministry of Christ. John is obviously in a very difficult time in his life, and he needs to be encouraged, and Jesus knows that. So the first thing Jesus did, he was encouraging him by revealing again who he was. So he, tells, he told these messengers to tell John all those things that he's doing in verses 22 through 23. And in these verses, these are fulfilling messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And John certainly knew those. So when Jesus told them, hey, go tell them all the things that I'm doing, John would be reminded, yeah, he's fulfilling messianic prophecies in these miraculous ways. He is the Messiah. This is the right guy. And so when we ourselves are going through a difficult time or we have a brother or sister in the Lord who's going through a difficult time, a good thing to do is remind them again who Jesus is. Speak that truth into their life using scripture, praying for them and encouraging them, telling them, hey, this is, you serve a mighty God, and he's able to take care of this. The second thing he did, he told them, he tells them these things, and he uh, says, give them this message. And the last thing he said, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now this is a difficult thing kind of to say to John. This is the guy, like I said, one of the most on fire for Jesus' people in the Bible. And Jesus is telling them, blessed is the man who is not offended because of me. So he lovingly told him, not to lose his blessing. And that's an important thing, too, to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ or to remember in our own life. Man, there is a blessing for serving the Lord, isn't there? There's a blessing for doing things God's way. And don't, don't play that foolish game living in the world. Don't, don't go that direction. You know, don't lose your blessing, man. Like, God has this gift he wants to give you. He wants to bless your life, but he's not going to bless your sin, Right? And sometimes that's something important to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And like I said, remind ourselves that. Don't use your own blessing that the Lord has in your life. So then I said, I, I believe this is kind of a public thing that took place, that Jesus was with the crowd. So the next thing that Jesus did was to protect John's character in front of the crowd. Jesus had every opportunity to put John down in front of the people. And we don't expect that of Jesus because he's sinless and he's loving. But if you think about people today, whether it's in ministry or other areas... There was some, some people interpreted there to be rivalry between John and Jesus who had more disciples, you know, and people that clearly didn't understand what God was doing. And here Jesus had every opportunity to make John look bad in front of everybody else and to make himself look better. But Jesus didn't do that because that wouldn't be the right thing to do. Instead, he reminded the people who John was and that he was prophesied about in Malachi 3.1, talking about sending the messenger before you who's going to prepare your way and telling them that there is not... Anyone born of women who's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. So he builds John up in the presence of these people. And something that we see here as he describes John is that we realize John wasn't the kind of person that, who tries to please people, is he? You know, he wore weird clothes. He lived in weird places. He kind of, in today's society, would be kind of the equal of a homeless person, you know? He probably didn't smell too good either. He ate weird food and... You know, he had, you know, locust breath. That's <laughs> probably not very appealing. So, but John didn't try to please people, but he had, like, an amazing ministry, didn't he? You know, we think of him being in prison as a bad thing, but the crazy thing is, like, he even had influence on Herod. That's why he ended up in prison. So John had an amazing ministry. Why was that? He was so weird. 
Well, he knew who he was in the Lord. He had clear direction from the Lord. I am his messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. And that's important for us to know who we are in the Lord. And you might say, I don't have a very specific ministry like John, but as you read the Bible, you see that you were saved, that you were loved, that you're set apart, that God's given you his spirit, and he's given you spiritual gifts. As we realize who we are in the Lord, we can minister before him as, as he guides us. The second key to his ministry was that he gave himself wholly to the Lord, didn't he? There wasn't any part of his life that appeared from Scripture that he held back from the Lord. He lived out in the wilderness. He was, he was away from the world. He didn't, you know, it didn't appear that he even worked or had a family or anything. He just completely gave himself to the Lord. And that's the other key to ministry the Lord's called you to, is to give yourself wholly to it. Now, I'm not saying don't get married, don't have a job. God can, you know, that might be part of the ministry that God's given you. If he's given you a family, that's your ministry. If you have a job and you're in a secular world, that's the ministry too. You might have open doors for the gospel or be an influence or showing the love of Christ. And then the last thing he says here is that, uh, but he who is least in the kingdom of God or is God is greater than he. And that might be confusing at first, but you think about this. John was born under the old covenant, wasn't he? John was born before Christ died. And Christ is saying that, you know, even if, if you were born after this and you're born into the kingdom of God, that even that is greater than John. But this is a kind of a common thing that Jesus teaches, talking about the least is greater. That's the repetitive thing that Jesus teaches about. So that's something to keep in mind. The kingdom of God is kind of an upside-down kingdom compared to what we see in the world today. So if you are least, if you feel like you're the least person in the kingdom, be encouraged because that's a good place to be as far as Jesus is concerned. If you feel like you're the greatest person in the kingdom, then you should be humbled because that's not really the greatest place to be. And if you are trying to get recognition for being the greatest, you need to stop. Okay? That's not a Christ-like attitude. That's not the way Jesus works. So then in verse 29 it says, When all these people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. So, there are two groups of people that Jesus is talking to. There are some that said they, were, uh, they justified God, having been just, uh, baptized with the baptism of John. So, those who repented at John's teaching were prepared for the Messiah. So, when Jesus came, they were repented of their sins, they were ready to receive Christ. And there were others who mocked John, so they had nothing to do with him. And it says they rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Which is a very sad thing to be. Now these guys are supposed to be experts in the word of God, experts in the law, and yet they rejected the will of God for their life. So don't be those guys. You know, don't be the guys that <laughs> reject what God's trying to teach you through his word and through his spirit. So Jesus says, what am I going to compare you to? He's talked about this kind of like, almost like a parable here of children playing, you know, they play the flute and you don't dance, they mourn and you don't weep. Well, in their culture, you know, if there was a wedding, they might even like hire people in the streets to play flutes and to celebrate with the celebration. And if there was a, like a funeral procession, they would actually hire mourners to mourn for you during the procession. 
And what they're saying is, you know, we played the flute for you, you didn't dance. We mourned for you, and you didn't weep. Like, you're not responding correctly. Um, and in the comparison there is John the Baptist came. He, he wouldn't partake in the food and the drinks of everybody else. He wouldn't live in society like everybody else. And they said, he must be demon-possessed. Jesus did the opposite. He lived in society. He communed with, you know, prostitutes and tax collectors and all these sinful, wicked people. And they said uh, that he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it doesn't matter what John or Jesus did. They're going to get criticized either way, weren't they? There's an important lesson for us because um, it's kind of something that's very common in our culture to try to be seeker-friendly and try to be kind of blend in with the world. We can't please people and God at the same time, can we? And honestly, you can't even pe please all the people that you'll meet at the same time. You know, you, If you are a kind of person that wants to please everybody, you're not going to please the people that don't like those people. You know, like I'm the kind of person I realize I'm not going to please everybody and I'm not going to try because it's impossible to do it. And we get this mentality sometimes in our American churches that we're going to try to be non-offensive. You know, we're not going to offend anybody. You know, so there's a lot of things, there's a lot of pages we've got to black out in the Bible because that will be offensive. We've got to do all these things to try to get as many people in and not offend anybody. And you're really watering down the word of God so much you're not really teaching it, are you? Here's the thing. People will come up with reasons why they don't like Christianity or the Bible. And you can try to change things. I won't talk about that then. They're going to find something else. Because what they're doing, they're actually rejecting Christ. You know, they like the sin in their life. They don't want to submit to God. And that's just the way the wicked hearts work, you know. Our hearts are desperately wicked, aren't they? We don't seek after God. So you can't try to go around pleasing everybody because it's just, it's simply not going to work. We're still going to reject Christ. That's why we stick with the word of God. We teach what it says. We share the gospel. And of course, it might be offensive to some people. But wouldn't you rather offend somebody and then let them just perish into eternity? You know? I think it was Charles Spurgeon says, if people are going to go to hell, let them leap over my body as I grab at their legs. You know, That was his mentality, and man, God used him mightily, didn't he? That should be the heart that we have. If I have to offend you, I don't care. You need to know this. Um, I had somebody get mad at me once for sharing the gospel with him. You know, He was drunk, and he wanted to drink some more, and I was basically convicting him. And he didn't want to hear it. And I didn't, by the way, I didn't mention anything about him drinking. I was just sharing the gospel and going through other commandments. But he felt very convicted. He got really angry and asked why Christians do that. And I said, hey, man, if you saw somebody on fire, wouldn't you want to help that person? Well, obviously. Well, you know, what I believe in the Bible is that you are going to be on fire for eternity. And I have to tell you this. If I have any care for humanity, I have to tell you this. And that guy suddenly said, you know what? I don't believe what you believe, but I understand now why you did it. Thanks for talking to me. And he walked off. He didn't accept Christ. I like to think that seeds were planted, though. You know, that he, now instead of hating Christians, he sees that if we really believe what we believe, we should be telling people, right? So don't try to please God. Uh, I'm sorry, don't try to please man. Stick with pleasing God. You're not going to please everybody anyway. All right, we're going to go through one more story, finish up chapter 7 here. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, and she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him and weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, 
and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here we have the story. The Pharisee wanted Jesus to come eat with them. It said, uh, he asked him into his house, and it seems like a nice guy. It seems like a nice thing to do. But we kind of get the picture. This guy probably only asking to try to find some fault with Jesus, you know. It's kind of a tricky thing to do. There are people like that, unfortunately. And Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. We don't always know. So sometimes, you know, people want to ask us about our faith, and they're just looking for a reason to make fun of it or to question it. And, you know, we just put that in the Lord's hands, you know. I'm going to talk to people. Whatever happens, happens. So he's at this house, and a lady comes in, and it says she was a sinner. Um... And the Pharisee knew this. So she brought this alabaster flask. And an alabaster flask was kind of means that it was expensive. Because what you would do would be like kind of like a really thin stone case. And you'd break the top when you're ready to use it. And it would be a very expensive perfume that she had. this fragrant oil. So she's doing this. And Simon thinks that Jesus is obviously not a prophet. Because he does not know who this lady is. Now, this is just speculation, but you think about this for a second. She came into the house without really being concerned that she's going into a Pharisee's house. The Pharisee knew who she was, and she wasn't asked to leave. You know? How does he know this lady is such a sinner? It's implied in the passage that she's likely a prostitute, is what the passage is getting at. You know, the Bible doesn't say he, you know, he knew her that way, but I'm just, you've got to ask the question here. So he's mocking Jesus in a way, saying, you know, he doesn't know anything. If he was a prophet, he would know this. But Jesus knew his thoughts, so <laughs> the trick's on him. Uh, you know, sometimes we might think we know more than Jesus, you know, just like he did. We get that mindset sometimes. We don't like to admit it, but we get that mindset. And the truth is, we don't, you know. We might not understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing, but he knows more than us. The other thing to remember is that our thoughts aren't private from him, are they? You know? You can be whitewashed tombs. You can go to church. You can play the part, but God knows your heart. He knows your every thought. So there might be some things you need to talk to God about today. So Jesus said, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. And he's probably anxiously awaiting a compliment. <laughs> you know, what a beautiful house you have. You are above all the other Pharisees. You know, he's, it, he's teacher, say it. He's probably anxiously awaiting that. So he tells a story about these two debtors. 
and he uses uh, 500 denarii and 50. Well, a denarii was basically a day's wages for basic labor. So 500 denarii would be about a year and a half's worth of labor that was forgiven of this debtor. So Jesus, a lot of times in parables, he uses money as an example because money kind of speaks all languages, doesn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately, God knows our hearts so much that, you know, our heart is where the money is. So he uses money as an example. A year and a half wages versus 50 days of wages. So Simon understands, well, I guess she's going to love the one who he forgave more. Jesus explains to her, you are rightly judged. There's the compliment he was fishing for, huh? So he said, you see this woman, I entered your house, and you didn't give me water for my feet. You know, you didn't kiss me. And uh, you didn't anoint my head with oil. Well, these are kind of common things when you have a guest. Being, hospi being uh, hospitable in this culture is huge. If you were not hospitable, that was another taboo thing in that culture. Even today in the Middle East, hospitality is a very big deal. Um, so for him to not to do these things for Jesus is really to show how little he thought of him. You know, he didn't think it was important enough to wash his feet or to kiss him, greet him with a holy kiss, or to anoint his head with oil. Those kind of shows that he really didn't respect Jesus at all. So that has to, we have to ask the question in our life, you know, how is Jesus treated in our home, you know? Would it be offensive to him, the things we talk about? Would it be offensive to him, the things we watch? Do we ignore him like he's not even there? You know, like, we don't talk to him, we don't read what he says, you know, we don't read his text messages to us. You know, how is Jesus treated in our house? Do we treat him like Simon the Pharisee, or do we treat him like the sinner who's been forgiven much? Um, so there are some things that she did that we can ask ourselves, are we doing? By washing his feet, she was serving Jesus. Do we serve Jesus? Do we do that every day? She wouldn't stop kissing his feet. Do we love him? Do we show our affection for the Lord? You know, and the Bible says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if you don't know if you love the Lord, are you doing what he says to do? And the last thing, she anointed his head with oil. Or, I'm sorry, she anointed his feet with oil. So the oil was made for the head. But basically what she is saying is, I'm not even good enough to anoint your head. I'm just going to anoint your feet. That's how humble she was before the Lord. So she gave out of her abundance to the Lord. This was, like I said, this was an expensive thing. Are we willing to give what we have to the Lord? And of course, you know, if, you know, if money's a big deal to you, maybe it's money. But maybe your time's the biggest deal. Are you giving your time to the Lord? Are you giving whatever God's given you? Are you giving back? Because that's kind of God's requirement for us. What he's given us, he wants us to give it back. So these are some questions to ask. So she did these things, and um, he said, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So we have to ask the question in our life. Do we see a lack of love for God in our life? You know, are you excited to read his word and to pray? Are you excited to have fellowship with the Lord? Or is God really a distant thing in your, your relationship with him? You know, does everything else in life come first? Because if you see a lack of love for God in your life, chances are you have a lack of understanding of the great forgiveness that he has for you. Now this is something that we can all struggle with from time to time. That we get so used to saying that we're saved and God loved us, we forget that how horrible our sin is before the Lord. How terrible of a thing it is. We forget how great our need is for a Savior. And we forget how much love God has for us. I got something special I brought for you guys today. It's a couple excerpts from uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <laughs> uh, it's a couple hundred year old sermon, but there are some things in here that's good to be remembered, reminded of sometimes. 
says, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree, or in any respect whatsoever, any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. They deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they don't go down to hell at each moment is not because of God in whose power they are is not then very angry with them, as angry as he is with many of those miserable creatures that he is now tormenting in hell. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation don't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them. And the pit has opened their mouth under them. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own. At what moment God shall pre permit him. They belong to him. He has their souls in his possession and under his dominion. The scripture represents them as his goods. The devil watches them. They are ever ready by them at their right hand. They stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they don't bear their weight, and these places are not seen. Pretty scary, isn't it? And we forget about that, how fragile life is, and that we are condemned already in our sin without Christ. And we realize all that Christ has done for us, that he's saved us, and that not only we have to spend eternity with him, but he wants to walk with us daily. We should be drawn to love him more. So Jesus tells her that her sins are forgiven, and he says, your faith has saved you. This is such an important verse. Your faith has saved you. She did a lot of works for him, didn't she? Washed his feet, kissed his feet, anointed his feet with oil. Um, but it was her faith that saved her. It wasn't her works. Her works were a sign of her faith, right? And that's something important to remember. If you really love God and if you're really saved, the works are just going to naturally happen. So those are a sign that you are saved by faith. It's not the other way around. Um, and then the last thing he says is go in peace. And like I said, I want you to look at the words of Christ today and ask, are those for you? And I think these three words definitely are for all of us, to go in peace today. God offers a peace that surpasses understanding. Uh, we all have troubles that we face. We all have difficulties. I don't know the stresses in your life today that you're worried about that's on your shoulders, but God wants you to know that you can cast your cares upon him that he, you can go in peace. And of course, the greatest peace we have is our, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? But we don't have to worry about that wrathful God that hates sin that we are committing. That he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, he sees his children that he loves dearly, and we can go in peace because of that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much. I thank you that you've completely just taken away our sin, that you say you separated as far as the east is from the west, 
that you promise us that you don't even remember our sins any longer, Lord. That when you look at us, you see the righteousness of Christ. And that you love us so much and that uh, you just want to spend time with us, Lord. You want to walk with us daily and you want to spend eternity with us. We pray that we'll remember that we are cit our citizenship is in heaven, Lord. That we're just pilgrims passing through here. That we'll live accordingly to that. Help us to follow your word, Lord. Help us to love you more every day. And use us for your glory as we go out this week to be a witness to the lost and encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And show us how you want us to minister before you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.